As a congregation, we've been working our way through the Lord's Prayer, and we've recently reached the petition of, Hallowed Be Your Name. So in connection with that, we'll be reading from Ephesians 1, the verses 3 to 14. And following that up with the explanation of that petition from Lord's Day 47. So Ephesians 1, the verses 3 to 15, and you'll be able to find that on page 1342 of your pew Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The word of God. Next, we will be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism dealing with this petition. What's the first petition? And that you can find on page 561 of your Book of Praise. What is the first petition? Hallowed be your name. That is, grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, hallowed be your name. What does this mean? To set the groundwork for this, let's first take apart the phrase itself so that we understand what exactly we're saying when we say, hallowed be your name. To understand this, we need to understand the word hallowed. Hallowed means to make holy. To be holy is to set apart. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we are calling on God's name 
to be recognized as holy, to be set apart. This holiness is something that we will be discussing over the course of this afternoon. So imagine, if you will, a scene. You're in ancient Israel. As you lift up your eyes, you see the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. His royal robe descends from heaven to earth, and the train of his robe fills the temple. The brightness is dazzling, and you can hardly process the beauty of the scene around you. Above the temple, flying above it, are the seraphim, angelic creatures, each with six wings. With two, they cover their faces, with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they fly. They are crying out with voices loud enough to shake the doorposts of the temple as the house of God fills with smoke. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the scene that was faced by the prophet Isaiah in the sixth chapter of his book. And it caused him to shake with fear. The holiness of God took his breath away and he didn't know what to do. How could he possibly stand in the face of this splendor, in the face of the brightness of the glory of God? This one who was the pinnacle of perfection, who was mighty in holiness, how could he face him? Woe to me, for I am undone, he says, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The awe and wonder he feels overwhelms him. He knows his own sin. As someone who would be called to be a prophet, many might consider him to be a good person. But next to this picture of dazzling purity, his wickedness seems like the blackest of corruption. He seems undone. And yet, God has mercy on him. One of the seraphim flies to Isaiah, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touches his mouth with it and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. But he doesn't stop there. We hear the voice of the Lord then calling out, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? There is a message that needs to go out. And in his newfound state of purity, Isaiah calls, Here I am, send me. What we see here happening in Isaiah is a microcosm of every Christian's life. It's a reflection of how man ought to stand before the holiness of God. What God does for man and the response that comes from man. And so it's with this in mind that we'll be looking at the very first petition of our Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. In this we pray that God would hallow his name through us to the praise of his glory. And we'll see first of all knowing the person of God. Secondly, knowing the works of God. And third, responding to our God. 
These are the three things that we need to know if we are dealing with the holiness of God, knowing who God is. If we're going to pray, hallowed be his name, we need to know who he is, know what he does for us, and the third, how we are to respond. Now, in today's day and age, we live in a funny dichotomy when it comes to God. A dichotomy is a division or a contrast between two things that are represented as being opposed or entirely different. And when it comes to God, we can really notice that even in our own church circles, we live in one. So what's the dichotomy? First of all, it's the question of addressing God as our Father. As we find in the opening words of our passage, there's this address that happens. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize that this is an appropriate and necessary thing to do, to address God as our Father. For those of you who were here last week, you might remember that we touched down on this in our sermon. And I'm sure it's fairly fresh in your minds yet. We address the question of whether God is really recognized as our Father. For many people, God is a being who is at a distance. In their minds, he doesn't truly interact with them on a day-to-day basis. And as such, they don't treat him as God with the closeness that is expected of someone who's a child of someone else. However, we recognize that in, in many of our churches, and perhaps here in Owen Sound as well, we live on the flip side of this. This is the opposite side. We don't always recognize what's fully meant when we hear that his name ought to be hallowed or held as holy by us. Or understand what we read when we read words like Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us to be holy before him. Because in our minds, while on one side we've created a God who's too distant to really be a father to us. On the other side, we've created a God who is still close enough to understand if we mess up. He gets it if we make mistakes, and he's willing to overlook them. We don't really ask for forgiveness of sins all too often. Think of it. When was the last time that you asked for forgiveness of sins personally? When was the last time that you brought up anything in particular? One reason for your not bringing anything up in particular is perhaps because you don't consider it to be that big of an issue. And consider that thought for a moment. That in front of the holiness of God, you still don't consider that little thing to be a big enough issue to look into your heart, seek it out, and confess it before God. We live in an age where God, while being distant enough not to be truly and fully recognized as our Father, is still close enough to put up with our mistakes. He's more of an understanding buddy in that regard. But when was the last time that we considered Him as a truly holy God? Do we understand what this means? In the 6th chapter of 1 Timothy, the 16th verse, we read a description of our God. 
There Jesus Christ is described as he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. He dwells in unapproachable light. His glory is something that staggers the mind of sinful man. Even Moses, the man whom God used powerfully to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt, who was described as the friend of God, was not worthy to see this God. God said to him, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. So shall it be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand as I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the holiness of God. This is the glory of God. Man, because of deep-seated corruption of his sin, cannot stand before God or he would be consumed. Does this give you an idea of how great and terrible the holiness and the glory of God is? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In English, when we want to emphasize something, we underline it, we italicize it, we might put an exclamation mark in front of it. But this isn't something that they did in Hebrew. In Hebrew, when they wanted to emphasize it, they they took a different turn. The theologian R.C. Sproul describes this, how, how Jesus does this. When Jesus was preaching to the masses and he wanted to emphasize something, he would say, Amen, I say to you. Now, in many of our Bibles, we find it not written as Amen, I say to you, but we read it written as Assuredly, I say to you. But when Jesus wanted to really highlight something, where we find it written in our Bibles as most assuredly I say to you, other translations as verily, verily I say to you, or whatever else. There he's actually literally saying, Amen, Amen, I say to you. Repetition draws attention. He's saying, pay attention, look here. So when Isaiah writes about the holiness of God, he doesn't say, holy is the Lord. He doesn't even say, holy, holy is the Lord. But he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Our Lord is three times holy. He burns with the most pure fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. Not an ounce of corruption can enter into his presence. How Awe-inspiring is that. Kind of terrifying, isn't it? For us, we can think, look at me. I'm sinful. I've done one thing or another. How can I stand? 
But we need to recognize that this holiness is something that we ought to be deeply thankful for. Because imagine for a moment that God would allow corruption into his presence. God is eternal. Think about it if you have, say, a large sharp pebble in your shoe. If you tried to go running with that pebble in your shoe, you'll feel it pretty quickly, won't you? But say you don't take it out for a moment. The pebble sits and sits. Once you start running for 100 meters, it'll be uncomfortable. By the time you hit a mile, it'll chafe. By the time you've run a marathon, it would have torn a deep hole in your foot. It'd be right down to the bone. Sin is like that. It wears away at you. Imagine if you had to spend eternity with it. Think about your, your friends for a moment, or, or your spouse. Do you know of anything that they do that drives you nuts? A habit that they have, a quirk or a foible, something that's not even necessarily sinful, but over time it really starts to stand out more and more. And it starts to nag at you. And that's, that's not even something that's necessarily sinful. Imagine if you had to spend eternity with your own sin and with the sin of those around you. Imagine if you had to spend eternity with your current lusts, your sinful, sinful thoughts, your struggles. It would eat at you bit by bit. It would have an eternity to consume and destroy you. What a horror that would be. The end result would be more like hell than like heaven. This is what we're countering when people bring forward a theology that says that God is more of a buddy than anything else. That God overlooks certain sins. Because that's the end result. But God doesn't permit that kind of corruption in his presence. Habakkuk 1 verse 3, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. We are spared an eternity of corruption by a God who cannot stand the sight of it, and will banish even the slightest hint of it from his presence. Oh, how God's purity, how God's holiness ought to make us rejoice. This ought to be something for which we should praise God. But recognizing that God is holy and cannot stand even the sight of sin does lead to a bit of an issue, doesn't it? Because as soon as the relief of realizing that you don't have to face an eternity of corruption wears off, you're brought to realize that, wait a moment, what about me? Doesn't that exclude me? In the Old Testament, the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt faced the exact same problem. Coming before God, they were impure. And they were unholy. 
Most of them had no real understanding of who God was or how he related to his people. They may have heard some of it passed on to them by their fathers, but they hadn't experienced it themselves. So when Moses came to lead them out of slavery, they had first rejected him. But God chose to reach out to them anyways. They were unholy, and yet God decided to make them holy. He decided to set them apart and to give them laws by which they could purify themselves. You can find long lists of these laws in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. What's your opinion about these many laws that God gives about impurity and the need for purification? The need for the people to demonstrate their differentness, their holiness, through, say, wearing clothes that weren't of two different cloths by doing other things that made them stand out from the people around them. Do you see them as restricting? Do you see them as oppressive? For the Jews, it was not so. For the Jews, the laws of God were a most beautiful gift. They were able to say, the law of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You can find that in Psalm, in Psalm 19. The law was beautiful for them because it allowed them to share in the holiness of God. It allowed them to come before a God who is holy. The work of God through the law was to create a people for himself, a pure people. And we can read about that in Deuteronomy 7. There God says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. He goes on to say, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But Because the Lord loves you, he chose you. Was this an inheritance they received from God on their own accord? Certainly not. It was all the grace of God. The Lord, our holy God, had chosen this people to be holy and set apart because of love. They were to be for him an image of what it meant to reflect the holiness of God on earth to the praise of his glory so that his glory would be recognized as utmost in all the earth. And it was he who had chosen them and he who gave them avenues, these many laws by which they could become holy. But the laws and ceremonies could only do so much and we recognize that. They could only create an image by which the people were able to get into a relationship with their holy God. They could only foreshadow what was to come. Because ultimately, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of rams, all of these different sacrifices, they can't pay for sin. Only man 
can do that. Man must pay for what he has done. So these laws, these ceremonies, they could only foreshadow what was to come. They, of themselves, could not cleanse the people. Hebrews 10 expands on this for us. We read, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Hebrews 10, verse 1 to 4. We cannot be made truly holy by sacrifice. And you know, sometimes that's, that's something that we struggle with. We create this idea in our minds that maybe we can become holy by sacrifice, that when we are involved in different things for the kingdom of God, when we give to the church, when we donate time, all of these kinds of things, that that somehow can work towards making us holier. But no matter what we sacrifice, family time, work time, money, for God in the church, and when we think we're doing it for God instead of doing it out of thankfulness, it doesn't add up to much, does it? Of ourselves, we're in a no better position than those Israelites. We cannot be purified simply by what we sacrifice. We cannot be made to stand before a holy God by them unless Unless, in the case of those sacrifices that the Israelites did, they were a shadow of something that was yet to come. It's through the expectation of the one who came as the fulfillment of the sacrifices and ceremonies of, that Israel was able to stand as holy before God. It was through the sacrifices that pointed ahead to Jesus Christ that the adoption that they received was made firm certain and sure. And this adoption and redemption, that was what brought out God's glory. So that's where our passage in Ephesians 1 comes especially to the forefront, the passage that we read. How do we say this? Well, we read in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. So that's the sacrifice that was given the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound towards us. And further in verse 11, in him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Again and again in our passage, that common theme for our lives, are being chosen, are being set apart, predestined, are being made holy, comes forward and it comes to a climax in that it's all done for the praise of God's glory. That's where we come back full circle to the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. 
When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're recognizing, as the Catechism says, that not only may we know God in all his holiness, but we may also sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works, in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. His salvation, his setting apart of people, these are his works. We're to rejoice in our God and the lengths that he's gone to in order to set apart a people for himself. This allows us to come before the throne of grace with reverence and fear because he himself has purified us. Finally, we're not only to recognize who God is and what he has done in order to purify us. But we're also called to respond in a way that's fitting. And this brings us to our third point. The final part of our Lord's Day points out the obvious conclusion of praying that God's name might be hallowed. Because we recognize, right, that, that God's name is holy, that God himself is holy. And that he purifies us. He transforms our lives. So what's the obvious conclusion? This is what it says. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. That everything that he's done for us, his calling initially, his redemptive work, his transforming, ongoing transforming work might all be to the praise of his glory. Makes sense, doesn't it? If God is holy, and if we're called to praise him as such because of and through his works, it only makes sense that we're not to sabotage it when we do so. By what we do. How many of you would recognize the sensibleness of this in your day-to-day lives? If you work for a company that has a great product and you praise that product to your customers, it only makes sense that you would use that product and not treat it in such a way that people who came to visit you in the home would think that you think it's useless. Kids, if you've been blessed with fantastic parents and you're always telling your friends, if you're always telling your friends how great your parents are, Would you treat them like dirt when your friends came over? No. Your your, your friends would be shocked if you did that. They might even laugh at you. They'd say that obviously you don't think your parents are that great if you treat them that way. It makes your parents look bad and it makes you look bad. It's similar in our lives. When we recognize God as holy, as holy as he truly is. And we think that it's an amazing thing that he's worked in us by adopting us as children and heirs, setting us up as a precious chosen people. Ought we not to respond in a similar way? If you wouldn't act in a way that reflects badly on a product or a person, why would you act that way towards God? On the flip side, if you really do have a God who's holy, if you really do have a God who has redeemed you, who has made you holy too, 
and adopted you into his family, ought you not to act and speak in a way that really reflects that, especially towards friends, co-workers, unbelieving family members, or others? We act not because we consider ourselves particularly special, but because God considers us as special, just because he said so. And we want to honor him for that. But more than that, we see God's holiness for the good thing that it is. We look forward to a day when the corruption that still remains in us, that we still struggle against from a day-to-day basis, will be completely rooted out of us. When our earthly bodies will be transformed and made like Christ's glorious body. When our holiness will be made complete and will stand as spotless in the presence of our God. When that day comes, no longer will we need to fall on our faces before our three times holy God and say, I'm a person of unclean lips and I come from an unclean people. Rather, because we have been purified, because of what Christ has done, not only will we stand before this God who is holy, 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 but he himself will be able to live with us in radiant glory. He himself will be able to live with us. No longer will his perfect holiness lead us to cringe in absolute terror, but instead it will allow us to live with him. As we see in Revelation 21 verse 2 and following, we we will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we'll hear a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And this God, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The reason for our corruption will have passed away. The last remnants of our corruption will be gone. It won't sit there riding us for an eternity like a pebble in our shoe. No, it'll be gone. Beloved, we don't want those around us. Don't we want those around us to share in this? Don't we want them to join in experiencing the perfect holiness of God in the fullest possible way, free from corruption and free from sorrow for eternity? So as we pray that God's name be hallowed, let's recognize and seek to discover more of God's holiness in his word. Let us recognize his freeing us from corruption and making us a holy people. And let us live and respond in such a way that those around us will be led to join in and to experience this holiness as well to the praise of his glory. Amen.